Welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, in which I chat to foodie A-listers about their four food moments in their latest books. This week, as we use January to rethink and reset the way we live, Sam Gates is here to teach us why batch cooking could save the planet. But first, in the last of the sound bites from this year's online version of the Oxford Real Farming Conference, which you can now watch for free at orfc.org.uk or on the ORFC YouTube channel, Dr. Vandana Shiva, a modern day revolutionary who takes on the biggest companies in the world in her fight against big tech in the food industry. The new patterns today are on fake food. So if you read our report on Gates to a Global Empire, you will find that the impossible burger, which is GMO soya, and you'll see the fashion of plant-based. I say, no, we eat plants, we eat vegetables. The minute you say plant-based, it means GMO soya went through a factory process to make it look like a meat or a milk or something else. We've got to stop the anonymity of food. Real farming and real food has personhood. You should be able to recognize what you're eating and not have lab-made heat pretend to be blood in a burger. Now, Sam Gates's Batch Cookbook went straight to number one on Amazon when it first came out at the end of last year, a sure sign that people are desperate for tips on how to get the most out of their lockdown cook-ups. But also perhaps it's an indicator of a growing interest in reducing waste. Or is it? It wasn't something that Sam had intended. For me, the idea for the book has came about because I've always batch cooked. My mum always batch cooked and, and I've always batch cooked. Um, you know, from my very first days cooking as a student, um, I always cooked more than I needed um, because it was just easier. And I've done that my whole life and having children, it's become particularly important as I've had less time and I've needed to be able to run in the door and feed them quickly. Yeah, so you've not set out to... to, to combat the big issue of waste you know there's some amazing facts about waste you know 50 million chickens are wasted in the uk each year as people buy bog off chickens and 44 percent of global waste is food compared to something like 12 percent being plastic or five percent of glass and you know the food and agricultural organization of the united nations says that if food waste were a country it would be the third highest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. That is so shocking. It's super shocking. And so what you're doing with your batch cooking is making sure that that amount of waste is being reduced. I mean, I know that that's not what you set out to do, but actually it's a hell of a, a claim to make, isn't it? That That's absolutely extraordinary. I had no idea that those of those statistics. I mean, for me, it's just been always been a way of life. I've literally, you know, I very rarely throw anything away. I just, I can't. I almost just can't do it. It's almost a sort of pathological thing. So I've always found ways of reusing what I have. Um, and I've, I've found things like, fun enough, things like um, the Eat Your Books website, which is brilliant, where you can categorise all of your books. And if you've got something sort of left in the fridge and you can't think of what to do with it, you can type that ingredient into the website and then it'll give you, it'll tell you a bunch of recipes in your books to, to use it up. So, for example, this morning I was sorting out my fridge. I've got three beetroots that are cooked <laughs> and a, a bit of marzipan left over from my Christmas stolen and a few odds and sods like that. And I've already worked out now what I'm going to do with them. So I'm going to make a beetroot cake at lunchtime. Um, I'm going to make some little marzipan buns. Um, and I've got a tiny bit of Christmas stuffing left, which is actually going to feed the dog tonight. Fantastic. So, so I, I just because I just can't I can't bear to chuck it out. It's ridiculous. So where does that come from? 
Definitely from my parents. I mean, they, we, we didn't have a great, great deal growing up. And my mum was a very thrifty cook always. Um, and she grew up pretty much self-sufficient, I think, with vegetables and honey. Um, and so we'd always grown, we always grew vegetables and things like that. But mum always used leftovers. We, we never wasted anything. And she was the classic sort of, you know, cook a chicken on Sunday, you'd eat it on Sunday, then you'd eat the rest of the bits on Monday, and then she'd use the rest to make a stock. And nothing, nothing was wasted. And I've kind of inherited that. Um, I mean, we do have a sort of rule. My brother has a rule, actually. I think his rule is three, if leftovers come up three times, after three times, then they have to go out. <laughs> but generally, <laughs> if you kind of calculate how well you're, you're sort of, who's going to eat what, then you can pretty much make sure that you don't have any waste. I mean, now I do also sneakily sometimes cook more than I need because I know that I'm going to really enjoy the leftovers. So, yeah. you know, for our, our Christmas lunch, for example, we made loads of extra baked potatoes so that we could make um, rosties the next day. Yeah. It's a great way to learn to cook, actually, isn't it? In that kind of environment where your mum is constantly rethinking food. So you've taken the, the base dish and then you're reinventing it time and time again. It teaches you all sorts of skills because it's about adding flavour or it's about cooking it in a different way. Uh, you know, turning potatoes into roasties being an extremely good example of that. And uh, and I mean, for example, in my book, I have a chapter which is all about sort of feasts or, or big big meals. Um, and initially when I wrote it, obviously feeding eight was, was something you could do right at the moment. You can't unless it's your family. But um, but so I have recipes, for example, where I've deliberately cooked more than I need. So my I've got this five spice based chicken, uh, baked chicken, which is just divine. And that one I, I always cook and I always cook more than I need because I know that it makes the most brilliant stir fry in the world yeah. afterwards. So I, I do tend to try and do that. And that was kind of my new approach to batch cooking as well in a way was not just to make more of the same thing, but was to make larger dishes that you could then repurpose. Yeah, exactly. Now, you say that your mum is your biggest influence and, you know, huge condolences. You know, I saw on Facebook that your mum died of covid very recently yeah. and very suddenly that must have been a huge yeah. shock so let this episode be a tribute to your mum thank you that would that would be lovely and and she would be um she didn't see this third book sadly um and and but she she knew all about it so she she knew everything that was coming into it and I talked about her some of the recipes with her so she knew all about that but she never saw it published and she also didn't see that I changed the dedication, so it oh. is for mum. So the book is written for mum, which she hasn't seen, but but uh, but I know that she would have been really proud. I mean, she really she really is my biggest influence. In fact, listening to some of your cooking the book podcasts, it, it seems to be a, 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 a sort of theme that runs through so much of it. Yeah. Mum was always a cook. She taught me to cook. Uh, she was a caterer. Um, in in later years, she was a caterer and an amazing cake. Uh, decorator you know she did wedding cakes and all that kind of stuff um and so yeah she 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 was a huge influence on me um and she was also very kind of uh she was an early adopter of lots of cuisines and styles of cooking in in my childhood when it wasn't really that that common well that's right and you say that she was a big Mardo Jaffrey fan like my parents were in fact the way that you describe your childhood sounds so similar to mine it's extraordinary <laughs> tell us your first food moment which is a very similar to yeah. mine the the curry well I think curries were just I remember one day they suddenly appeared in our house suddenly there was Mardo Jeffrey and there were curries all the time we, from 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 them never having been anywhere suddenly there were loads of curries and my parents had 
stacks of dinner parties, big, noisy, loud dinner parties where it was really cool. And, and mum would make sort of five or six curries for these dinner parties over a period of days, laboriously, um, you know, very complicated curries. And uh, we, my brother and I would sort of be sent off to bed, but we tended to creep down and stare through the banister and try and eavesdrop on what was happening because obviously it was far more Sound exciting Sound of music style. <laughs> and then oh, she also used to do the most amazing toffee fondue as a pudding. So we would obviously creep down in the morning and that would still be on the table. So that would be breakfast, which was fab. Um, but that really influenced me. And I, so I've always cooked curries, um, but I wanted for the book to come up with something that was a little bit um, easy, but just, just didn't require as much prep. So I created a baked curry where you literally just marinate the chicken for a while and then chuck it in the oven. And that's another one that's, that's great for... Uh, providing leftovers because it makes more than you need and then you can toss the leftovers in a bit of rice the next day or do a kedgeri or or in chicken sort of kedgeri or whatever um but yeah that was that was a big thing for me we we used to really enjoy that and it was always just so much more exciting listening to what the grown-ups were saying (laughs) and that baked cardamom chicken curry in the book is your version of it um of course, curries are so much better the next day as well. So that batch yeah. cooking. So once you've cooked up enough of it, I mean, how how long would it keep in the freezer, for example? Oh, I've, I mean, well, to be honest, I cooked um, and tested most of the recipes for this um, over the course of this year. And some of the some of the recipes, because I tested everything three or four times. There are things I've been eating, we've been eating now, which have been in the re- in the freezer for sort of six months. I'm sure that's not technically the right length of time. But um, <laughs> like most of us, um, I tend to have stuff in the freezer for, for probably a lot longer than I should. But yeah, I mean, three months is, is, is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in the Melissa Hemsley um, episode for her book, Eat Green, which which was quite early on in the Cooking the Book series, uh, back in March or something, Katie Caldazy um, was cooking with her. And the two of them talked about our idea of waste and how terrified so many people are. Katie was saying that a lot of people come to learn to cook at her cookery school. And they're terrified of leftovers. They're terrified particularly of meat and cheese and how long you can keep it. I think the thing is that, you know, I tend to follow just sort of basic basic rules i mean things like cheese i to be honest i've always frozen cheese i i tend to buy a massive block of cheese grate it stick it in the freezer and then i use it virtually straight from frozen because cheese is one of those brilliant things that you can just chuck straight in and and you don't have to worry you don't have to worry about it and it's obviously much more economic and not economical to buy a big block of it and grate it yourself than to buy ready grated cheese so i i use all that i use that all the time um and yeah, yeah i mean i i think using leftovers has to become uh, something that you just always do rather than something where you sort of sit there and go oh my god what am I going to do with these and I feel terrible if I'm going to throw them away so I've got to think of something as a content creator you're always putting these on Instagram as well you're putting them out there on social media for people to be learning all the time it's terribly important isn't it it's very simple to get it right but but you do need to to know the basics so you know with something like a leftover piece of fish what are the rules about something that's strong tasting like soy sauce or um chili or something like that what are the what 
what are the basics? I think, fun enough, soy sauce is probably the condiment that is most used in my house um, because I used it initially as a way of getting the kids to eat vegetables. So I would let them, you know, they would I'd make broccoli or beans or whatever, and then they would put soy sauce on them a little bit. And then it kind of got a bit out of hand, and I ended up buying soy sauce in literally sort of three-litre containers. Um, so I then secretly started diluting it, which the kids spotted immediately um, because it was watery soy sauce, which wasn't great. But, I mean, we, we get through so much soy sauce, I use it for everything. But but obviously it doesn't, doesn't go with all flavours, you know, so it doesn't go with haddock particularly, as I've discovered. Um, but yes. but, I, but I, use it, I use it a lot for things like... Marin- I do use it for marinating. I use it for a final sort of zhuzh, you know, before something is served at the table. Um, there's, a, there's a dish in my book which is a one-pot fish curry with noodles, for example, and you just sort of do a great big squirt of soy sauce over the top before you serve it, and it not only looks great, but it just gives it that edge. It's a bit like um, putting a little flavour bomb of, of uh, lemon rind, l- lemon zest and herbs in at the last minute. It just gives it that extra. Yeah. So I, I absolutely love it. It's definitely my favourite condiment. Yeah. Your second food moment is a nod again to your childhood. Uh, You, like me, uh, you grew up in a family of the chest freezer being the sort of the (laughs) centrepiece of the furniture. God, the amount of times of going down to the hippocampo in Abergavenny to stock up the chest freezer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But the, the, the recipes that you choose for your second food moment are unlikely members of the chest freezer, I would have thought. Tell us about the stuffed jackets with mushroom and pancetta. Well, I have to say stuffed jackets are a revelation in terms of freezing because it's not something you kind of would normally think you can freeze, but they freeze really well. Um, And there's a couple of stories there. One is really that this is initially the first recipe I really learned to cook. Um, When I was very young, I was given a copy of a book called My Learn to Cook Book by Ursula Sedgwick, which I think is a... Sort of, uh, uh, did you really? Yeah. Um, and it was a kind of iconic book. I put it on Instagram, you know, and it, I, I put it on Facebook as well. The, the combined comments just show that absolutely everyone I know who cooks well started cooking from Ursula. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's. I think because it was, perhaps it was one of the first children's cookbooks. I'm not actually sure. It'd be interesting to find out. But also because it was full of these really fabulous, almost cartoon-like illustrations, which made it really easy to follow. Yeah. Um, and so I made her cheesy baked potatoes, yeah. which was literally one of the first things I made. And it became one of my, still is actually, one of my... My favorite suppers um and so over the years I'd, I'd always made it but I'd started adding in slightly more sort of grown-up ingredients um and this so in the book I have a it's um, they're stuffed with pancetta and mushrooms or wild mushrooms if you can if you can get them um and I literally make a whole batch of them and freeze them in their halves and and then just whip them out and stick them in the oven and they are just divine um but that that's a real classic one it's also mm. it's also really inexpensive I mean I I've always eaten I've always loved baked potatoes and I remember I was actually rem- remembering yesterday when I was thinking about talking to you today that when I was at university one of my birthday presents from mum when she turned up to come and see me was a sack of potatoes uh, you know a massive <laughs> sort of whatever you know with sort of 200 potatoes in it and uh, I remember thinking I, I remember saying to her what 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 why have you bought me this and she said well you know I know you haven't got any money and um you know that it's it means you can feed everybody and I did I put it in our communal kitchen and it lasted about a week and the whole floor ate baked potatoes you know every single day it was brilliant well exactly 
And again, I mean, you mentioned it earlier that a lot of the people on Cooking the Books all had the same experience as I did, as you did, of, you know, learning to cook at home and then feeling that kind of sense of disconnection from home when you get to university, suddenly drawing on your mother's or your father's or your granny's skills in the kitchen and finding that cooking equals feeding, which means making lots of friends, <laughs> being the most popular person and getting a lot of feedback on what you're feeding a- people. Absolutely. Um, and that gives you a, a value. A lot of these people became food writers and it's really interesting that they didn't become professional chefs. But that's what happened to you, isn't it? Very much so. I mean, I, I, I've got so many pictures in my sort of uni albums of, of tables full of, you know, 10, 12 people of us all, of uh, you know, cooking all sorts of stuff. Um, and every celebration, you know, we had an American friend, so we would have a Thanksgiving dinner you know we even despite living in really sort of grotty student accommodation at, at that time as I'm sure you remember it was all pretty rough um, and sort of very basic equipment um, we, we would turn out feasts the whole time and and actually fun enough my my, son, my son's at uni now and he is a he's a really good cook in fact both my kids are really good cooks I, I've sort of yeah. taught them to cook from as literally as, as soon as they were strong enough to hold a spoon they were stirring things um, and one of the gifts yeah. gifts that I gave him recently was a slow cooker and um, in fact, I gave him a slow cooker and then I sent him a present, which was a delivery of a pork shoulder and a load of ingredients to make one of the recipes from the book. And so he made it for his <laughs> flat. And so he, he started and he he's now does flat dinners at his flat where all his the six of them, they all put in a bit of cash and he cooks for them. And um, and it's brilliant because he's learning how right. to cook and he's learning yeah. some skills and they all think he's he's a genius master chef, which is marvellous. There you go. <laughs> so it started with a sack of potatoes. It did. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's go on to um, avoiding waste by cooking with gluts and seasonal food. Your third food moment. This is about cooking with plenty. Is it about cooking with the seasons you use the one bowl spiced apple and almond cake but i'm wondering if it's related to cooking with any fruits or or, or ingredients from any season absolutely um i mean it's i love cooking when things are abundant um and one of the things i love to do is cook when things are abundant but also try and capture and preserve those fabulous flavors so whether it's making you know for example, whenever we've been abroad in the last few years and we've been somewhere where there are lots of fabulous figs, I bring figs back with me and I'll make flapjacks with figs and freeze them. So you can sort of keep that lovely sun-kissed taste all the way through a few more months and drag it out into the winter, which is great. Um, And apples, again, mum grew up with apple trees, so she'd always made apple cakes. And that's, I think, one of the first cakes I ever made was an apple cake. And there's been a version of it in all of my books um, because I can't get away from it. It's just so easy and so delicious and so I don't know it's one of those things that I remember making it once for a commercial client who were doing a demonstration and a couple of people walked into this demonstration who I'd never seen before and this this guy walked in and he was a very kind of stern sort of serious businessman and he walked in and he literally sniffed and said what is that smell and I said it's apple cake and I gave him a piece and he said I feel like I'm a child. This just tasting it had taken him back to being a child growing up and tasting this very simple cake. So, yeah, I I cook a lot with that. At the moment, we're lucky enough, we have quite a gnarly apple tree in our garden, which doesn't produce a lot, but I've sort of jealously hoarded all of the apples and I've still got about seven or eight in my fridge and I'm still using them to make apple cakes now 
But yeah, I always cook seasonally. Yeah. Uh, and at the moment, it's, we're lucky enough to live in the country. So we can do a bit of foraging around here as well. We have wild garlic, which is can't wait for that to come back. We've got apples, we've got blackberries, you know, just basic stuff. Even got some wild mushrooms this year, which was fab. Yeah. The idea of having a freezer, I'm just thinking about myself. I don't really freeze stuff. And I'm the way that you're talking makes me think, well, actually, I'm going to try freezing much more. It's it's much more cost effective. It is much more efficient in many ways. I mean, I'm a big leftover fan. And we, we talk about leftovers in your in your fourth food moment. But actually, once you master freezing, it really sets you free, doesn't it? Um, I, I thinking, I, I'm thinking about your what you're saying about foraging. I would think, yeah, I'll do that. But actually, if I'm not going to be eating it immediately, what's the point? It's just going to go off. Once you've mastered the, the the rules around freezing, then you can really start using it much more efficiently. Are there some basic rules that people need to know? Are there things that won't freeze, for example? Um, I, I think I've, there's definitely some things that don't freeze well. Um, I, I think, I mean, my mum always used to freeze milk, for example, um, which which I, I don't really, I don't tend to freeze. The, I, I know that you can, but it's not something I tend to do. Often I find things with sauces with cream in don't seem to freeze as well or if they do you have to defrost them and warm them very very gently so they don't sort of split um some herbs freeze really well but they tend to freeze well for cooking so for example you can freeze parsley chopped parsley um from the garden which i do but but it doesn't work well as if, if you use it as a garnish because it tends to go a bit sad and and sort of floppy but it works really well if you're cooking it in something um some herbs I've found freeze brilliantly. Chives, for example. A lot of common wisdom seems to say that, fr- that chives don't freeze very well. But again, I've found they work really well. Um, my freezer rules would be more about how you start the process. And for me, it's about having a really ruthless edit to start with. Um, I mean, I remember from the days of having my parents having the chest freezer. I mean, I, I remember doing things like sort of when I was small enough, literally kind of hanging over the chest freezer to try and get the stuff that was at the bottom do you remember that when you were when you were little because it yes absolutely because they were so huge um and and they didn't really they weren't designed in such a way that they'd have sort of compartments in those days the whole lot just went in didn't it and so you'd sort of virtually fall into it trying to get the stuff that was at the bottom but (laughs) i think in those days as well it it, um you'd end up with all sorts of things you'd have stuff that'd be in there for years um and so i think my my (laughs) advice would be Start with a really ruthless edit. And if you haven't eaten it within a year or whatever it is, chuck it out. And also, if it was something that you didn't like very much the first time, you're really not going to like it a year later. So that's the other thing is, you know, don't use it just to put in the stuff you don't really like. So I do really ruthless freezer edit and then invest in some great reusable freezer kit, you know, silicon stuff and reusable bags, all that kind of stuff. And then also have a little look Mm -hmm. online in terms of how to package it and how to store it. You know, I've, I discovered that very simple things like if you're stuffing, doing things with liquid in, lay them flat to freeze. Um, you can do things like open freeze stuff. So, even things like blackberries, we were open. I picked lots of blackberries this year. Open freeze them just so that they're hard hard enough, and then put them in a bag so that they don't all squash together. Things okay. like that. So yeah, it's and uh, and the other thing is keep your freezer full. 
because it, it's quite wasteful. To, it, they like being full. Freezers like to be full. That's right. And what about taking things out and cooking? So when do you cook from frozen and when do you have to defrost first? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I've got, for example, in the freezer, I've just made a batch of, um, they're my swirly buns from the new book, which are with cranberry and pistachio nuts and marzipan. They're amazing. And I actually froze some as, do- as literally just as the d- in the dough state and I froze some as cooked. Um, and you can actually put them both in, you know, but, but the cooked ones I take out and put in the oven just for a few minutes to defrost and the unfrozen one, the, the uncooked ones go in and just, you can cook them straight from frozen. Away from freezing, let's talk about leftovers. Um, leftovers, again, a total skill. You've used uh, a lot of spices in your fourth food moment of Thai spiced pumpkin soup, clearing the fridge of vegetables, adding some spice is that what it's about for you? Yeah, and to be honest, that recipe I first came up with just because I, I was so horrified when I heard about pumpkin mountains. And um, I think it was my brother told me there's some terrible statistic that pumpkins make up, you know, one of the main sort of food mountains in terms of waste because everyone buys them for jack-o'-lanterns for Halloween and then chucks them out. And even just talking to friends, pretty much everyone I spoke to said, oh, yeah, no, we, we just chuck them. Um, and a lot of them will use the excuse that it's because they're using cheap supermarket pumpkins that don't have a lot of flavour and you couldn't cook with it. And I was just quite appalled, <laughs> to be honest. So I thought, right, let's have a go at this. And I started making very spicy pumpkin soups um, with all of the sort of old Halloween lanterns. Um, it does need a bit more oomph if you're using a, a slightly, you know, a sort of grown for Halloween pumpkin. Um, but they can taste great. Um, and actually, that's become one of my most sort of requested recipes now. So many people have asked me because people are realising that actually it's, it's a, it just feels terrible to chuck out a, a whole pumpkin, particularly some of them are huge, aren't they? Um, and all you need to do is just cut, yeah, cut away absolutely. the burnt bits, cut away any wax and obviously give them a good clean. And then if you roast them and then mix them with something, I, I tend to use a red curry paste as well, just to give it a real blast. Um, and they taste great. And also you can freeze the soup so it, it, it can go on forever. It's it's a really good skill to master for a New Year resolution. I'm personally going to do it. I'm, and I think it really will revolutionise the way that I organise my fridge and my eating habits. Um, you know, there's only two of us in lockdown now, and uh, and it does make sense just to cook a batch, put it away. You know, another half of it, and then you can just pull it out for lunch in a couple of days time it's a it's a really good way to tackle way so thank you very much and uh, good luck with the book thank you so much i've really enjoyed talking to you it's been great thank you and good luck with the leftovers thanks for listening you can buy the batch cookbook by sam gates and all the books featured on cooking the books by clicking on the bookshop tab at juliesmith.com and while you're there sign up for the newsletter for loads more stuff happening in 2021 next week i'm with sam rice to find out how her midlife method can make us more aware about the food we eat. Mm-hmm.